We have no idea what most of the universe is made of. I mean, we know it's there, whatever it is, but the thing is, we don't know what it is. So we call it dark matter and dark energy. And after years of ideas and hard work, we're getting close to making some major breakthroughs. Today, I have the privilege of talking with the person at the forefront of this research, Professor Catherine Fries. Her book, The Cosmic Cocktail, is about this international search, and she explains what we know about this elusive, mysterious dark stuff. My name's Craig Barfoot, and you're listening to Pod Academy. Catherine Fries, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm happy to be here. Katie, I didn't know until reading your book that it was only relatively recently that we discovered uh, that our universe is bigger than our galaxy. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? It's, it's unbelievable. So 100 years ago, you had, on the theoretical physics side, you had Einstein's theory of relativity that was brilliant, it was tested, but even at that time, people didn't realize that there was anything beyond our galaxy. That's just, that to me is absolutely amazing. So they thought that all the stars, all the bright objects in the sky, they thought that all of that belonged to our Milky Way. But then it was Edwin Hubble who was using a telescope in just outside of Pasadena in the Angeles Mountains who made measurements of some of these distant objects and was was able to show that they're really, really too far away and there's no way they could be inside the Milky Way. So some of the stars that we're seeing are distant, bright galaxies. And so it was it was at that point that people began to realize that there are, they called them at the time, island universes. And now we call them galaxies. In your book, you have a wonderful paragraph about telescopes being time machines. Can you explain this for us? Yeah, when... Uh, telescopes are time machines in the sense that whatever object we're looking at, we're looking at it not the way it is today, but at the time the light was emitted. So the information comes to us at the speed of light. So when we're looking at the sun, we actually see it the way it was uh, roughly 10 minutes ago, because that's how long it takes the light to get to us. So the farther away we look, we're actually looking farther back in time. And so very distant objects could be millions of years ago, there, there, you could have some erupting supernova or gamma ray burst or something really dr a dramatic event, but it, it happened a million years ago, but by the time it gets to us, uh, the, the event could be over. So yeah, it takes, so by looking farther and farther away from us, we're looking farther and farther back in time. That means there's a limit to how far out we can look. The, the age of the universe is roughly 14 billion years. So if we're looking at something that's 14 billion light years away, that means we're looking all the way back to the Big Bang. This is what we call the edge of the observable universe. There's no way we can access anything farther out than that because we would have to go back to earlier than the Big Bang. So what was so special about seeing these distant galaxies for the first time that meant then we needed to include this idea of dark matter? That stems back to the work of Fritz Zwicky in 1933. He was a Swiss astronomer using the same telescopes that, that Hubble had used to uh, study 
galaxies, and he was looking actually at a cluster of galaxies. What he noticed was that in this cluster there are hundreds of galaxies, and, and some of them were moving very, very rapidly. In fact, he couldn't account for, their, for the speeds of their motions. Based on the other material that he knew about, the material that gives off light, that you, you, should, you can predict how fast things should be moving, and it didn't add up right. So he speculated that there might be a new kind of material called, which he called dunkle materie, that's the German for dark matter, which is pulling on these galaxies and speeding them up. It's the gravitational pull of this additional new component to the, to the universe that would be providing the pull that speeds them up. So that was, that was the initial idea that dark matter could really be out there, something new. But then let's fast forward to the 1970s, to the work of Vera Rubin and Kent Ford. The, the, the scientific consensus required the, that, what, what, that in, in order to get scientific consensus, it had to be, they, they had to show that it's every single galaxy has a similar kind of behavior. Inside of galaxies, things are moving too rapidly around the centers. So again, you have to postulate some kind of dark component that's pulling on the stars and gas moving around the center to speed them up to these rapid motions, these rapid orbits. So it was then that the scientific community really began to think, yes, this dark matter is not just in that one cluster that Zwicky was looking at, but instead it's everywhere inside every single galaxy. So that was the, the, so this dark matter problem is 80 years old, and we still don't know what it is. I've watched my fair share of universe documentaries, but somehow it had escaped my knowledge completely, this idea that that matter, or the matter that we know, only makes up 5% of the universe. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's incredible. So this question, what is the universe made of, has a very surprising answer. So let's take everything that we know about, our bodies, the air we breathe, the chairs we sit in, the buildings, throw in the stars, throw in the planets, all of that, it's made of atoms. And all of that at atomic stuff adds up to only 5% of the universe. So everything that we see, we hear, we feel, all of that, that's, that's nothing. And we still have to understand the dark matter and the dark energy that constitute the other 95%. That is, that's, this is big stuff. Yeah, yeah 95% is a huge amount. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so how does that all break down with the, with the dark matter and the dark energy? Well, the, the, you can think of this as a cosmic cocktail with 5% is atoms, 25% is dark matter, and the rest, 70%, is dark energy. So that's the basic breakdown of the three main components. Oh, and you might want to throw in a millionth of a percent or less of supermassive black holes. So if, if normal matter only makes up 5% of the universe and the rest is dark matter and dark energy, well, I'm made up of the same stuff as, as the stars and the planets. I mean, I'm, I'm part of the universe. So does this mean that I'm made up of 95% dark stuff? No, 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 no. Uh, you're, you're made of atoms. And the, there, there could be dark matter that goes through you. We, in fact, we think dark matter is some new kind of elementary particle, not neutrons, not protons, not the stuff that you're made of, but these, these other particles, you could have billions going through you every second, 
But that's all they do. They just go through you. Maybe once a month, one of them would hit one of your nuclei, but they're, they're irrelevant to your daily existence. So everything that we're familiar with, including our bodies, is made only of atoms. There is a, there's a picture you include in your book of the bullet cluster, where you show the a merger of two galaxy clusters. And in that picture, coloured nicely blue, are two big blobs of dark mm-hmm. matter. Can you explain for us how we know specifically that like, this dark matter is, is like precisely there? We, we know about it from its gravitational pull on things. Things are moving around and you can't explain it based on the stellar material. So you have to add something else in. So we already talked about that the, these rapid motions inside galaxies, but there's another way to look for dark matter, and that's Einstein's lensing. Wherever you have mass, it bends the light. So this, Einstein predicted this in 1915 and it was observed a few years later. So this is a real effect. So if you look at some distant object and let's say there's a lot of mass in front of it, but this distant object is bright and you're looking at the light from it, the, that light will get bent on its way to your telescope by the intervening material. So by looking at, and, and in fact, when it does that, you get double images, you get sheared images. And so by looking at distant bright objects, you can decipher how much material was en route in between that brighter object and you. So that's a way to look for dark matter. Okay, so it's not that dark matter is evenly distributed all over the universe. It's in particular clumps. Oh, yes. Yeah. Dark, dark matter, that, well, the definition of matter is that it feels gravitational attraction. So it tends to clump together. In, in fact, it's dark matter, which is the bulk of the mass in the universe. There's five times as much dark matter as there is atomic matter. It is the dark matter that starts the process of galaxy formation. First, it clumps into small regions, and then those merge together to make ever larger structures until you get galaxies and clusters of galaxies and so forth. The atomic material just goes along for the ride. We would not exist as the, the human species would not exist if we didn't have dark matter out there to start that process of galaxy formation because it would just take too long if, for atoms to clump together. It's the dark matter that dominates that process of structure formation. What we've been talking about up until now, is this disputed in any way? I mean, that dark matter exists and that you can see it through gravitational lenses? No, it's not. Pretty much everybody believes in dark matter. There are, there are a few people who are still interested in, in looking for alternatives. There's the possibility that Newton's laws fail on large scales. That would explain these rapid motions of things around the centers of galaxies. So you can write down theories that do that. However, in order to explain all the myriads of observations, we have so many different pieces of evidence for the existence of dark matter and trying to explain all of those in terms of modified Newtonian dynamics, that's what these alternative theories are called, those alternative theories have a very tough time explaining, for example, the bullet cluster, where you have a clear differentiation between the atomic matter that gets stuck in the middle and the dark matter that remains spread farther outside. So there, there there are a few holdouts of people who are still trying to make that work, but the scientific consensus is pretty clear that dark dark matter really has to be there. It really makes a lot of sense. 
So what has emerged as the most likely candidate for dark matter? People tried out a lot of things, simple things like rocks or gas or dust, and, and none of those worked. Well, we think that the dark matter is some new kind of subatomic particle, and there is a long list of possibilities, a plethora. There are WIMPs, axions, primordial black holes, even WIMPzillas, all mirror matter, all kinds of ideas. But there's one candidate that clearly stands out as the favorite, and that is WIMPs. So <laughs> that stands for Weakly Interacting Massive Particles. And actually, there's a lot in the name. So with the W and the I stand for weak interactions. Dark matter does not have electromagnetic forces, or, and it doesn't feel the strong forces that hold your nuclei together. It does feel gravity. And of the four fundamental forces, the remaining one would be the weak force. This is responsible for some types of radioactivity. And if we make the postulate that you have a new fundamental particle that has weak interactions as well as gravity, then it, it turns out that a lot of things just come out right. And so there's a lot of motivation for this particular theory. Now, the reason they are the favorite candidates is that if you make this assumption that you have a new particle that has weak interactions, and then you make the calculations in the early universe of how many of these particles are there, there are and what kind of interactions they have and so on, and then you can ask how many are left today, what's, what's the relic abundance of WIMPs today, then what's, what's remarkable is that you get exactly the right number to make the dark matter. People call this the WIMP miracle. So that's, that's the, the motivation for this idea that, that you, there's only really one of the four fundamental forces left, and if the particles have that, then, then, you, then you automatically are able to produce the dark matter that you need in the universe. If you have something so compelling as these numbers, I mean, matching up, what is it to, that stops people from saying, well, that's, that's it? We... Oh, well, we, ha we have to detect it. So we, we're uh, in the process of trying to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing. I, like, okay, maybe I'm just naive, but I thought that if you were looking for dark matter in the universe, you'd be looking up. But as it turns out, there are a lot of scientists at the bottom of mine shafts yeah. all over the world. <laughs> know, isn't it? Yeah, it's true, yeah. Yes, you go a mile underground, either in these deep abandoned mines or underneath mountains. So your alternatives are, for example, there's a deep mine in South Dakota, it's called the Sanford Mine, or there's another experiment underneath the Apennine Mountains near Rome, and I think I'd rather be working in the location near Rome. <laughs> so what are they doing exactly to try and detect this dark matter? Well, this leads me to tell you a little bit about the work that I did. Uh, I was one of the people who first proposed and wrote down, we did calculations for the, the possible idea of building these kinds of detectors. So the basic idea is that you have these wimps flying around in the galaxy. They're everywhere in the galaxy. Billions going through you every second. If you build a detector, then those wimps will have a weak interaction very, very rarely with a nucleus in, in the detector. And what they do is they just scatter off of the, off, off of the nucleus and deposit a very small amount of energy in the process. That energy deposit is what the experimentalists have to measure. 
So about 25 years ago, we did some calculations showing that building these detectors would make sense. And so now there's an experimental effort worldwide, all over Europe, all over the United States, even at the South Pole, to put these detectors deep in underground. And they're looking for these weak interactions of the WIMPs with their detectors. Some of these experiments are seeing hints of something. Some are claiming detection, but some are not. And so this is a confusing situation because we, we don't know how to compare these results against one another. Okay, so there's one thing that we call dark matter in the universe, and then there's another thing that we call dark energy. But isn't Einstein's equation e equals mc squared, so that's energy equals mass. Uh, so aren't dark energy and dark mass the same thing? No, 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 they're not. They're really, really different. Uh, the, the way I would say it is that the, all of these things are part of energy. So the, the part of the energy is the mass of objects, and part of the energy is the movement energy. And the third thing could be a vacuum energy. So there's all these different types of energy. So yes, mass can be converted into energy, but the, it, the total sum of all these things includes all of them. But it, whereas when, for atomic matter, we can convert that to the kind of energy that we see in our daily lives, so, but the same is not true of dark matter and, and dark energy. I would say put a wall up between them. They're probably very different things. There are some theories that try to relate them, and it, so it is possible. But on the whole, people think that these are completely separate quant objects, separate quantities. The, um, going back to this idea that, that matter feels gravity, matter is attractive. Dark energy, on the other hand, is causing the expansion of the universe to accelerate. It's causing everything to move apart faster and faster as time goes on. So in some sense, dark energy has a repulsive behavior. So dark matter is attractive, dark energy is repulsive. Katie, there is uh, so much of interest in your book, and I wish today that I had more time to delve into all of these things. But uh, because this idea, of, I mean, this idea of dark energy as a force that is making yeah. the universe expand and pushing it apart with increasing speed, I mean, this, I mean, this idea is just incredible. You know, nobody expected this. Well, on, on, in the at. Even at the end of the last millennium, in the, in the 1990s, everybody assumed that the expansion must be slowing down. They assumed the universe must be decelerating. There's even a, a quantity that we talked about which had a minus sign in front of it because everybody was so sure that we have to be decelerating. I guess because they thought there's the mass and the mass pulls us back together and in the long run, everything will, will recollapse into a big crunch. However, so what a paradigm shift, what a shocker when it was discovered that, nope, that's wrong, the universe is accelerating. That really, that was a big surprise. And the, so now we have a big theoretical conundrum because we have no idea how, what is making this happen. So on the dark matter side, we think we know a lot. We know for sure that galaxies and structures, everything's made of almost entirely of dark matter. But on the dark energy side, that's just a label. Our understanding is very, very minimal. It could be some kind of vacuum energy. It, 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 there's some ideas that people have, but that's a really tough problem. And what, so what a shocker that we're dealing with this. It's, it's pretty interesting. What are you personally concerned with? I mean, what worries do you have? 
So yeah, people ask me what's my what is what is my nightmare about the whole thing, and I would say that, well, it's possible that everything that I'm doing is science fiction. That sure, you can have great ideas. They can be mathematically consistent. They're creative. They're cor they're correct in principle, but they just don't match the universe. The universe is is a uh, we, we won't know until the until the data come in. And so that's my worst nightmare, that everything I'm doing turns out to be, well, very smart and all that, but it's not nature. You comment that the Nobel Prizes are often given to older scientists, and the, there, is a bit of, there is a lack of younger role models for young scientists, and that this is a bit of a shame. Yeah, I think that's true. The, a lot of the people who get Nobel Prizes when they're older actually did the work when they were quite young. And this message is lost on the, on the public quite often because they only see the people who get the Nobel Prizes. Another reason that I wrote this book, my secret mission is to convince young people, and in particular young women, that they can do this too. To try to inspire them to become scientists. But they really should. Uh, I really admire, and I mean, I wish I wish I was a part of where you are standing, because of your work and, and what you are doing. You're you're at the edge of the map. I mean, yeah. you're, you're like the explorer <laughs> at the edge of yeah. the map, and you're poking away at what we don't know <laughs> past that. Yeah, yeah. You know, when 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 people talk about creativity there, and they think about the arts, and I'm and I'm thinking, boy. We in the sciences, we're in a we're in the we're in a sweet spot here, because there's technology that didn't exist. So that allows us to go do something really new, to look at things that no one has ever looked at before. Now I sound like I'm from Star Trek, <laughs> but it's it's really fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure it is. I'm sure you have a remarkable job, and I'm sure you get a point of view that is uh, quite unique about our universe. Well, people always say, oh, wow, the universe is so large. And when I hear about the research you're doing, it makes me realize how small we are. We're not even made of the most, the main constituent of the universe. We're made of the atoms that's, we're, we're so tiny. And then my response to that is, yeah, but think about it. We understand the fundaments of the universe all the way out to the edge of the observable universe. We've pretty much got it down. Now, we don't know what the dark matter and dark energy are, but, but we basically are, we are we're not expecting any big surprises as we move out all the way to the edge of what we can see, the 14 billion light years out there. So if you think about it, our bodies may be small, but our brains are huge. This, this, uh, this discovery that has happened in the past hundred years, it, uh, it's, the human species is, we're, we, we love to explore and we've done pretty well. Katie, thank you so much for doing the work that you do and for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to talk to me today about it. Well, well, thank you very much. You have been listening to Catherine Fries. She is the George E. Uhlenbeck Professor of Physics at the University of Michigan and one of the world's leading researchers into the mysteries of dark matter. My name's Craig Barfoot. Thanks for listening to this podcast.